Welcome to Star Trek and the Jews, the monthly podcast that uses Star Trek to boldly explore the worlds of Jews and Judaism. I'm Josh. And I'm Chava. Chava, congratulations. You've had a big month. It's been a big month. It's true. December was uh, a lot of stuff. A little too much stuff, honestly. I feel like I like having my good things separated (laughs) so that I can enjoy them all. And now I'm just like, oh, well, okay. I defended. Adam and I bought a house. Woo-hoo! And uh, I got a job that Yay. I started two days ago. <laughs> Mazel tov. Thank you. Happy uh, Gregorian New Year's. Yeah. I always find like the secular New Year a little weird. Like Rosh Hashanah feels like my New Year. It's it's the end of summer and school's starting and it's my birthday. And <laughs> I don't know, it just feels like, like here we go again. It's time for a, like a new year. Yeah, it really feels that way. And December 31st is like, it's dark and cold because we live in Canada. January 1st continues to be dark and cold for another two months. It's just like <laughs> second Christmas to me. <laughs> like, oh, they had Christmas and like, they're kind of sad that it's over. So just have another I like one. Christmas much in the same way that I like Ontario Civic Holiday, the Monday we get off in August. Yeah, same. Although I uh, did participate a little bit this year. I have a few very close non-Jewish friends. So I sent them some Christmas gifts because I thought it would be nice. Oh, that is nice. They're like not able to go home and stuff. It's kind of sad. I think if we only had two good holidays, we would go nuts about them too. Yeah, totally. I totally think that. Although they do have other holidays, they just don't care about them. You don't see them like getting out the decorations and putting on the annoying mall music for for like Pentecost or whatever. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. We do have a lot of festivals that we just don't do. (laughs) Speaking of which, this is a Tubishvet episode. Yeah, festival that we do do. (laughs) So. Why don't we start by talking a little bit about Tubishvat because it's coming up. Yeah, Josh, tell us about the trees. Okay, so Tubishvat is happening soon. If you're listening on the day of release, it will be in about two weeks because it is on the 15th of Shvat. It's a holiday that has, let's say, evolved. <laughs> Some people call it like the new year of the trees or the birthday of the trees. I would say another appropriate name for it is fiscal new year to reconcile tree products for taxation purposes no i i don't know that's just me it's the new year of the trees (laughs) (laughs) so yeah the talmud says that there's four new years right the the new years for trees the new years for kings the new years for animals and the regular new years and and I think some of it has to do with, like, seasonal stuff related to the way, like, agriculture was taxed and sacrifices were made. And some of it has to do with the fact that, like, there were different competing calendars that had different purposes. Like, for example, the, the Hebrew months in the Torah don't have the names that we give them. They have numbers. Mm-hmm. But, like, Tishrei, the month that Rosh Hashanah is in, is not month one. I think it's, like, month. Seven? Seven, is Nisan yeah, one? seven. Because actually month one is Nisan, which is like when Pesach is. That's like actually the beginning of the year in the Torah. Like I think the original purpose of Tu Bishvat was 
like a rounding date for kind of like the agricultural rules. There's a Torah prohibition on eating the fruits of trees in their first three years. Uh, and there's also like certain taxes and sacrifices that were associated with when they hit their fourth year. But it's like very difficult to keep track of every tree's birthday. So Tubishvat is like the effective day. And if you were had your first blossom before that, you were the previous year and after it, you were the following year. Um, so like I said, fiscal new year for plants. I like it. I think it's cute. And Rosh Chodesh Elul, uh, which is like the New Year's for animals, I think served a similar purpose for animals. But over time, the purpose of Tubishvat evolved. And this is the case for all Jewish holidays. All Jewish holidays have uh, evolved over time. And like Rabbi Andrea Myers said when they were on our podcast a few months ago, if you don't know what the purpose of a holiday was or the origin of a holiday was, it's probably agriculture. <laughs> so I think like Pesach and Shavuot and Sukkot also likely had agricultural purposes before other purposes were ascribed to them. For sure. So in the Middle Ages, um, mystics developed this idea of the Tubishvat Seder, a special festive meal eating lots of different fruits and nuts from the land of Israel and studying Kabbalah, Jewish mysticism, or a particular stream of Jewish mysticism. I don't know a lot about Kabbalistic ideas around a Tubishvat Seder, but I know an analogy is made to like the Etz Chaim, the Tree of Life. As was the case for Hanukkah, which we talked about last month, uh, modern groups reimagine Tubishvat in different ways. Zionists in the early 20th century connected it to planting trees in Israel, which in some ways was about like ecology, but I think for Zionists, planting trees was about permanence. Mm -hmm. There is a very specific message you send when you plant a forest of trees that will mature for a hundred years in a land that you're saying is yours but is contested. It's see you next century. Yeah. And you know, there is a Jewish environmentalist movement as well, some of which overlaps. Jewish environmentalists have grabbed onto a lot of the biblical agricultural rules and use them to, you know, demonstrate respect for land and conservation and make Tubishvat a day that is about environmentalism and shared responsibility and thinking about the earth and plants and things like that. So there's Tubishvat. Happy Tubishvat. Yeah, and I think that that's actually super important that Jewish environmentalists are like kind of rooting their arguments in halacha because definitely it's an issue in the Orthodox community. Like one central issue for outreach in the Orthodox community is that environmental discourse often sounds kind of pagan hmm. and it's often seen as suspicious witchcraft or something. It's partly part of the problem with trying to convince ultra-Orthodox people that being environmental is not going against Judaism because rationalists often interpret Judaism as like opposite to the nature religion hmm. because it's very monotheistic. That's kind of anti-monotheistic, like Mother Nature and things like that. Especially that kind of like mid-century, I don't know, 60s and 70s environmentalism that was, like you said, like Mother Earth, very kind of goddessy. Exactly. It's very anti-monotheistic. There's um, a word I heard Orthodox Jews use as a slur a little while back that I was sort of surprised by. And the phrase was, tikkun olam Jew. Um <laughs> 
<laughs> and, you know, tikkun olam is this concept of the obligation to repair the world, and it has, like, deep and Kabbalistic origins, but it's something that liberal Jewish movements have, like, really grabbed onto as a way of, like, engaging people who might not be interested in Jewish prayer, while they very much are interested in, like, Jewish social action, and you could fit anything under the umbrella of tikkun olam if you were doing good. And I think this was a criticism to call someone a tikkun olam Jew was to be like, oh, you don't really do the Jewy stuff. Your Jewishness is just kind of a flavor that you've put onto your generic liberal social views. You're Jewish, right? Because they'll see them as Jewish still anyway, if they're uh, oh yes, it so. wasn't challenging their halachic status. It was a it's it was more a just like, insult oh. of their religious practice. Yeah, totally. And you know what? I'll admit, I'm a tikkun olam Jew. Like, I'm not so into. I don't think you I'm not, are. I'm not so into prayer, but Judaism for social action is something that I'm super interested in. For sure, but I, you also do like Shabbat and lots of things that are just like ritualistic. I think I would say. If you dig into the people who really care about tikkun olam and their Judaism, it turns out actually a lot of them are interested in like tech study and reimagining new ways to do old practices and things mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you know what? For the ones who aren't, I'm okay with that too. Like, I feel like every generation gets to reimagine its Judaism and Jewish practice in, in the same way we talked about like Tubishvat being reimagined. Yeah, the Orthodox community in general is very against that. So that definitely makes it difficult to convince them. But we have a lot of halachic arguments that we'll talk about a bit later. So we watched two pieces of Star Trek this month, the next gen episode Force of Nature, as well as Star Trek 4, the one with the whales, <laughs> um, also known as the uh, the voyage home. I think that's how it was released in some markets. But to me, it's always the one with the whales. <laughs> you want to start with Force of Nature? Sure. The long and the short here is that some aliens effectively hold the Enterprise hostage, wanting them to study their novel theory that warp travel is destroying subspace, and particularly in their region of space, that the scientific communities have been ignoring this, and that they're creating a looming environmental disaster that, if left unchecked, could stop all warp travel in the galaxy. Wow. I wonder where I've heard that before. <laughs> <laughs> Well, they do talk about climate. The gravitational shifts have already begun to affect my planet's orbit. Our climate is changing. This episode came out in 93, so climate change definitely in the scientific community was already past the point of consensus, but I don't know how out there it was in like the collective conversation. So I think this episode is like partly about climate change, but also about ozone depletion, because this would have been just like a couple years after the Montreal Protocols. And, and that's something that like people would have known a lot more about. Mm -hmm. So what did you think of Force of Nature? I really like this episode. It made me feel warm about humans. I mean, at first, they were very against it. And I felt like I could really connect with that. Like they were against accepting the scientific research that the alien brought to them and saying that they're destroying their planet. That I actually thought was a very Jewish reaction, the way Jordy reacted and then afterwards he was feeling bad about it because it's just like often how I feel about different attacks on like Jewish rituals. So he was like upset that he had been so stubborn and was just defensive about warp engines doing damage. And mm -hmm. I find I feel very similarly about, for example, circumcision. 
or, for example, how we shecht animals. Lots of different things that perhaps were acceptable a few hundred years ago, but now it's questionable whether it's morally acceptable or not. And I'm just like, ah, I don't want to think about it. Just let me do my thing. Even though, like, all these things probably should be reassessed. Oh my god, I'm going to attract the intactivists, but I, I'm totally in favor of Britmilla. Like, I, it's not an issue for me. I mean, I, I do think it's a little weird that we have brunch after, but, uh, but I'm all for it. It's all about the bagels. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Jordy is the most interesting moral part of this episode. He is pondering what happens when all this time you thought you were doing something good, which like for him, it's this whole human federation of ideology of like, we explore space to better ourselves and humanity. And all this time you thought you were doing something good, it turns out you were actually doing something bad. That is a scary thing to deal with. It is. Um, we talked about two bishvat and planting trees in Israel. I think about like, like draining the swamps, for example, uh, mm. like planting the eucalyptus trees to like supposedly bite malaria in the Galilee. But like it turns out they created an environmental catastrophe in the north of Israel that has had like lasting uh, impacts for uh, drinking water in the in the whole region. They thought they were doing something good and it was a disaster. I feel like in general, and we'll probably talk about this a bit more in Rev Alert, but I feel that way about a lot of things to do with how to treat the environment, especially recycling. Like, you'll, you'll always mm-hmm. be trying your absolute best to sort your recycling and make sure everything goes in the right spot. And then, like, you see an article on CBC that's just like, yeah, they burn it all. <laughs> and there's really no point, basically, in doing the recycling. Almost, It's almost worse what they do with it than what they do with actual garbage. And then that's really discouraging, of course. I'm way out of my expertise on this, but there is a very compelling paper. And there's an episode about this on um, on NPR's Planet Money, if anyone's interested, that makes a very compelling case for throwing out your plastic recyclables in the garbage if you live in a city where you know your landfill is far away from the ocean. And the long and the short of it is that a lot of the plastics we recycle end up in the garbage, but sometimes get exported to countries that are going to dispose of them in a uh, far less safe way than they would be if you're putting them in like an inland landfill. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Another one of the issues is shipping our waste to someone else. Uh, I hate seeing stuff like that. Um, (laughs) But there are also lots of lots of ways to mitigate that. And there are companies like TerraCycle. I don't know if you've heard of them, but they like partner with other corporations that are trying to reduce their footprint and they they like have a a very clear way that they're recycling stuff you can like choose which products you buy based on if you know that they are partnered with TerraCycle. you can ship them your waste for example which then also maybe is problematic because you're uh shipping stuff <laughs> but uh nothing's perfect so mm-hmm. I, it's so hard because plastics are they're such like an incredible revolutionary consumer product and so linked to like everything we use now. And there yeah. aren't like really good viable alternatives. Yeah. Like the reason that plastic is so amazing and revolutionary and like why we use it for everything is exactly why it's like very bad for the environment. It doesn't break down. One thing I didn't like about this episode is that I thought like, 
the whole self-sacrificing quasi-eco-terrorist bit was like a little played out. Uh, but maybe it wasn't played out in 1993, and it just feels like a tired trope now. I see what you're saying, but I don't see it that way, because it was like, there was a clear purpose for why she did it. Hmm. She was like, I have to do this in order to show them that my theory is correct. So it wasn't just like, let's be terrorist to upset people into listening to me. It was like, we, I need to show them that this is true, and this is the only way I can do that. So... I, I don't know. I sort of respected the decision. I thought it was it was good. And also, their planet's being destroyed, so she's, like, doing it for her people. I don't know. I see your point, though. Are you a fan of the show The Expanse? Yes. So, this episode is actually written by Naren Shanker, who is the showrunner on The Expanse. Really? Oh. Like the modern Battlestar Galactica, The Expanse is one of, like, the the children of Star Trek. All these guys who got their start as as like writing interns on TNG went and created this whole next, next generation of sci-fi shows of which the expanse is, I think one of the best. And I think that they're mostly better than discovery. For example, (laughs) they're better than the like newer star treks. The expanse is amazing. I thought. Um, Yeah. And, and certainly these issues of like um, environmental damage and um, self-sacrifice are like really at the core of that. Although those probably come from, the novels, which Naren Shanker was not involved in. He's, as the showrunner, like translating those to the screen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Before we go to Reb Alert, do you want to talk about some of like Judaism's environmental ideas, laws, things like that? Yeah. So there are basically two main halachot that are pertaining to the environment. And the one that sort of relates more to to this episode, Force of Nature, is uh, Baal Tashchit, which is basically do not waste. Um, it's it's like, don't use stuff in a wasteful manner, but that's not like super obvious what that means. So, of course, there's like tons of commentary and an argument about it in the Gemara. The Rambam says that basically the prohibition of Baal Tashchit does not only apply to cutting down trees, for example, it also includes waste of any useful resource. And he gives examples utensils, clothing, structures, springs, and food. And it also applies even when the destructive act is indirect. So if it's grama, basically, this this is also something related to trees, but the Rambam cites a prohibition in the Torah that says you're not allowed to redirect water from a tree. Hmm. If there's like a stream of water that's flowing towards a tree, you're not allowed to like put a dam to make it go somewhere else because that's like indirectly destroying the tree and being wasteful. And so even indirectly being wasteful is prohibited. So the the outcome matters. I guess the problem with Baal Tashchit as like an environmental value, and I think it's like a really good starting place um, for talking about environmentalism and Judaism, is that I don't think it helps us with consumption that is useful to humans, but destructive to the planet. So I kind of agree with that for the treatment of animals, but I actually was reading a little bit uh, about other people's views. So the Chavot Yair, uh, these are their two principles. The the Chavot Yair, I, I don't actually know who or what that is. Yeah, he's a 17th century rabbi. Uh, he's a German rabbi. Uh, he's known as the Chavot Yair, but um, whose name is Yair Chaim Baharach. Oh, that guy. 
No, I still don't know. Basically, it's forbidden to destroy a resource if the same goal can be reached without its destruction. So even and mm. even if this requires additional expense or additional trouble, um, and there's no like, and we're not allowed to destroy a natural resource without like a real concrete justification, and it can't just be for pleasure. Um, oh, that's really interesting. So like, you can't burn this coal from the ground even if it's cheaper than putting up the solar panels, if you can put up the solar panels. That is the Chavot Yair viewpoint. But the vast majority, like you said, the vast majority of halachic scholars right through to the present day basically follow the uh, human utilitarianism. But yeah, so a more modern view that I'd found was from Rabbi Moshe Sofer, who's often called the Chatam Sofer, from Hungary, uh, 18th century, 19th century, that just human utilitarianism is basically an indefensible claim. It's actually forbidden to transplant a tree even if there's no reason for it. So mm. like beyond just having the stream of water being redirected from a tree, if you just want to take a tree out of the ground and move it somewhere else, there has to be a very, very clear justification for that. And so his kind of viewpoint of it was a bit different because it's not really about being wasteful, but rather it's about uh, the idea that every object in the world has a fundamental right to continue to exist as it is, which is very much, I think, how we sort of uh, view modern environmentalism, or at least that's how I view it. Mm -hmm. More on that in Star Trek Four. There are a few other interesting halachot that are connected to not Bal Tashkit, but are connected to environmentalism. So just like a discussion about who is culpable of destroying the planet, there are exemptions for people if they're doing some sort of action on Shabbat. If they don't complete the action because different people are doing it together, then none of them are culpable for breaking Shabbat. That's like a argument in the Gemara. Well, that's dangerous. Yeah. Then like Rabbi Yosef Rosen of Rogoshov, he says that if the outcome is undesirable, the two that perform an action together are both liable because the the undesirable outcome was realized. And that's kind of shown from the... So basically, we're all culpable. <laughs> Which is sort of at the core of like our environmental predicament. And at its core, the reason we have environmental damage pretty much comes down to like free rider problems. We have poor incentives individually to do things that are for the good of the planet. This, this episode in particular made me think a little bit of Shemitah. Yeah. Uh, definitely. Do you want to? Do you want to explain what shemitah is? Yeah. So shemitah or sabbatical year is this commandment in the Torah that, interestingly, it's not really clear if historically it was ever observed or if it was more of a an ideal type, but a essentially an obligation to let land in Israel lay fallow every seventh year uh, for the purpose of a proving one's faith, but also ecological restoration of the land. And this idea of like, like resting the land, which I think can be a pretty good stand in for space and finding ways not to like distress it and destroy it is really tied to the themes of the episode. But what I also like about the Shemitah year is the Shemitah of Shemitahs, the Yovel or Jubilee, which is that after the completion of seven of these seven-year cycles, there is the Jubilee year, quite a radical obligation that debts are wiped out and land is removed from the ownership of its legal owner and returned to the original tribal group that was entitled to that land. Wow. 
like in a, in a modern context, that is no longer possible because the tribal affiliations have been have been lost to time. But it's like a really bold connection between restoring the land by letting it lay fallow and economic justice, as I think we're going to talk about in Reb Alert, environmental justice and economic justice are intrinsically linked to each other. Yeah, it's Shemitah is such an interesting idea. It's such a weird halacha. And of course, there are Jewish loopholes. I think in late 19th century, they basically decided that you could like sell your land basically the same way we sell our chametz on Passover. And that's like obviously very important for impoverished Jews that need to be able to continue to work their land. They like basically sell it in name only. Mm -hmm. Um, So it belongs to someone who's not Jewish and they can just continue to work it. Like I think that they actually sell most of Israel for Shemitah year. Mm -hmm. Uh, But there are lots of ultra-Orthodox people that not against that, but are still like trying to follow higher than that and will only buy produce from Arab countries during the Shemitah year. It's an interesting challenge because I think like modern science has borne out that there were like great benefits in the ancient world to letting the land lay fallow after a certain period of of growing. But like modern agricultural sciences have not rejected those beliefs, but refined them and, you know, saying, if you are growing this particular crop for three years, you're going to need to put in this other crop for one year so that you get more nitrogen fixed into the soil. And then, oh, Mm -hmm. maybe put in this one to get more phosphorus. And I mean, the agricultural world today is very data driven, which is important. Like we grow food so that we can eat and we have a planet to feed and some people who don't have enough food. It's quite a big challenge for Israel where like agriculture is a, is a really important part of people's livelihood and the economy. Mm-hmm. Chava, do you think we should go to Reb Alert? Great idea, Josh. Delay that order, number one. Red Alert. Enemy Paul is a Canadian politician, activist, and lawyer. She was recently elected as the leader of the Green Party of Canada. She is the first Black Canadian and the first Jewish woman to be elected leader of a major federal political party in Canada. Welcome to Star Trek and the Jews. Many of our listeners are international and might be hearing your name for the first time today. And of course, as the newest federal political leader, lots of Canadians are still getting to know you as well. So to start off, maybe you could tell us a little bit about who you are and what you stand for. First of all, thank you for the invitation. People won't be able to see it, but I'm wearing the most Star Trekky of all of my clothes today, the, the collar. And fun fact, one of my sister's very best friends in the world is the lead costume designer on Star Trek, uh, the uh, Discovery series and the newest series as well. Wow, is that Gersha Phillips? Gersha Phillips, exactly. Oh, you know the names. That's right. (laughs) Gersha Phillips is one of my sister's oldest and closest friends and is actually going to be helping me uh, pick out my my own clothes now that I'm the leader of the parties. Wow, what a small world. Yes, yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. I guess that's the most important thing maybe that your (laughs) listeners need to know about me, that I am a friend of Gersha Phillips. Beyond that, my name's Anime Paul. I'm the new leader of the Green Party of Canada. I'm someone who was born and raised uh, in the greater Toronto area. My family comes from the Caribbean. I'm a lawyer. I have a master's as well in public and international affairs from um, Princeton. And my focus has mostly been around just trying to make the world a better place. You know, very, very Jewish things. <laughs> Values around uh, respecting life, uh, human life and other life on this planet, trying to work collectively towards positive change. 
Uh, and I've done that in this country. I've done that in other countries, uh, mostly around international affairs and social innovation. And I'm the mother of two, two boys. And my partner and I, we've been together since law school. And no, I, I'm sad to say he is not a Trekkie, not at all. He does not understand science fiction. It confuses him. He's an international human rights lawyer, so he can write a peace treaty, but he could not explain the plot of any episode of Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> and we always ask our guests, since they run the full gamut from hardcore fans to complete newbies, where do you fall in that in the Star Trek spectrum? You know, it's gotten away from me. I'm someone that grew up watching Star Trek. I'm sure I've seen all of the episodes. I've watched all of the films, but like Marvel and um, DC Comics, where the universes have become so large now, the franchises have become so huge that it's become really hard to uh, to keep up. Right. And these days, especially, I don't really get a chance to to watch much of anything. So I'm aware of, you know, of Picard and Discovery and the new spinoff, but I actually haven't had a chance. So I'm sure they're great. I haven't had a chance to watch them. But the films, all of them, yes. And the TV series, um, all of them until, let's say, the um, early 2000s, yes, also. Great. I'm a pretty big nerd. People will, should also know that about me. Fit right in with us. <laughs> <laughs> For this episode, we have our Hebrew School homework, which is like an episode of Star Trek. So we watched the Next Generation episode, Force of Nature. And it's uh, it's imperfect in a kind of cheesy 90s way, as you would expect from Star Trek. But one takeaway that I had was that it shows the way harm to the environment can impact people disproportionately relative to their power in society. And so to that effect, I was wondering if you could talk about the relationship between the green movement and equity. In the episode, it's like a it's like a discussion about warp engines. They have like a detrimental effect on subspace. You would have thought they would have figured that out by then. No, no. I mean, that doesn't give me a lot of hope about here and now if they haven't figured out a way to, you know, not damage the environment, not damage subspace, even, <laughs> even, even then. It was like dawn of the 90s of like the yeah. environmental awakening. <laughs> yeah. Well, absolutely. You know, there, there. Are, it's interesting. I haven't had a chance to read them yet, but I've seen that there have been a few articles published over the last few days about how people in cities and particularly in low income uh, neighborhoods within cities are significantly more impacted by uh, the degradation uh, to our environment. I mean, some of that, some of that people, you know, you know, intuitively, but absolutely there are major intersections between the environment and the climate and social justice. And we, we often say there's no climate justice without social justice. We know that the people that have been and are going to continue to be the most impacted by our warming planet and by environmental degradation are low-income people, racialized people, developing countries. And uh, paradoxically, those are also the groups that are actually least responsible for the environmental degradation and global warming. Mm -hmm. And then you add on top of that environmental racism, which people are starting to become more aware of, which is the intentional placement of uh, toxic facilities and industrial waste and, and polluting uh, facilities uh, within the neighborhoods uh, or the communities, communities of color or low-income communities. And so, yes, it's something that we have to understand that if we really want to have a very strong coalition of people that are fighting uh, to protect the environment and the planet, that we need to keep in mind the social justice parts of that. And so the Green Party, for instance, we talk about, we talk as much about, and certainly in this moment, as much about completing our social safety net 
and building a truly just and equitable society as we do about, uh, you know, greenhouse gas emissions, because we understand that the two things go hand in hand. Is this the time for me to show you that I can do my V's? <laughs> and I, I have been, I have been, I have Hold been on. one of my I want to take a screenshot of this moment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I do it so easily because I've been doing it since I was a small child. It was, and I was the only one in my family who was able to do it. I thought that everyone could do this, but apparently not no. everyone can. Can you? Yeah, I, I learned how as a small child. Yeah. So that was the hand in hand. Yeah. When I think about uh, Judaism and the environment, you know, what comes to mind for me is is like the concept of lo tashit or do not destroy this really profound ancient value that we as Jews have an obligation not to wastefully consume the earth's resources. And of course, you're the first Jewish woman to lead a major federal political party in Canada. And I was wondering if you could speak to how um, your Jewishness has informed your journey and your outlook as an environmentalist. Well, it's it's just quite easy because, as you said, the values are are there, and these aren't you know they're they're not exclusive to uh, to Judaism, but certainly those values around uh, respect, you know, the, the humanistic values, the respect for the natural world, the recognition of our interconnectedness, the recognition of our uh, shared responsibility to each other. Those are all uh, core Jewish values and they're definitely core values of our party. Uh, I love the universality of the themes uh, in, in Judaism as well. And Really, at this moment, especially where people are re-remembering just how interconnected we are to each other and to the natural world, uh, you can just see these uh, these ideas, the wisdom of these uh, of these ideas, these values in practice. So for me, it's it's very it's very easy to reconcile my Judaism with uh, my political life. You know, I hope I really hope that we hold on to this feeling because people. I think that if people remember how interconnected we are and how we all have responsibilities to each other and to the natural world, that we actually could do something really extraordinary in the years to come. I really think that this could be a turning point for us. Yes, you know, one of the things I, I mean, I wasn't born into Judaism, but I've been, it's been um, our family's practice. Well, my, my husband, his family's Ashkenaz and uh, Sephardi. But, you know, we've been together since I was 20. So forever, I mean, my whole, just forever, since the beginning of time, <laughs> since forever. It, it, you know, one thing I really enjoyed in the early days uh, of uh, my Judaism was just recognizing how, how just, how much good common sense there was in the rules and in the, in the practices. And sometimes you do something without fully understanding why you're doing it. And then it reveals itself. And so that was always, that still is something that I, I really appreciate. Yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah. You touched on this a little bit in uh, your answer to my previous question, but more specifically, there's a line at the end of the episode that we watched um, where Captain Picard says, now it seems that all this while I was helping to damage the thing that I hold most dear. And it seems like when I was growing up, there was a lot of emphasis on personal responsibility. And this is something I've tried to bring into my own life, like minimizing my use of disposable plastics and my waste trying to buy ethically, making sure I'm recycling. And now I feel like my efforts to be near zero waste are pretty futile without government action and big change from corporations. So what can we do as individuals to actually make an impact when it comes to the climate and the environment? 
It's an excellent question. And last night I was participating in an event with Diane Sachs, who's the former environment uh, commissioner for Ontario uh, before she was unceremoniously booted out. Not her. I mean, the entire office was shut down uh, under our current premier. Uh, She's also Jewish. uh, And uh, she uh, said last night, I thought it was just a perfect way of saying it. I don't know if, if, if she said it or if she coined it from someone else. But what she said is that individual action is a great place to begin, but a terrible place to stop. Mm. And, and so she's absolutely right. You know, every, those, all those things that you do, uh, if you think of them on, on a collective scale, on a national scale, they can certainly have an impact. There is no question about that. But are they enough? Definitely not. And you're absolutely right. We've arrived at a point in time where without national and international action, we definitely are not going to succeed in protecting our environment and and preventing uh, further global warming. You know, those individual actions, they allow people to feel empowered. And I think that that's really good. It allows you to feel tangibly day to day that you're doing something. Uh, What we need now, though, is to really uh, step that up and have people demand from their their elected officials that they bring in the policies, uh, make the investments, um, they bring in the regulations, Uh, that are going to help get us to net zero as quickly as possible. And we can definitely do that. But without the public really pushing on this, really insisting that it be made a priority, we've seen that it's not likely to happen. So I would say one of the most empowering things that people can do next year, uh, assuming that we have an election, and I think that we will, is to make it clear to all the parties that they want them to prioritize this. And in terms of our party, we very much want to work with every single political party about this. Coming back to Star Trek, it's an alliance. You come together to build alliances because you know that you're more effective together and that some things transcend politics. If there was ever anything like that, the climate is that. This is something that transcends politics. It transcends partisanship. Uh, it's something that uh, you know we can only save uh, the world together. And so whatever your political stripes, make sure that you're, um, you know, whoever you're supporting is absolutely clear that you want this to be a priority for Canada going forward. This episode that we watched touches on the free rider problem a little bit. There's a line from it. And what about the Ferengi, the Cardassians, for that matter? We can only hope that they realize it's in their own interest to take similar action. But of course, in our world, hoping that states realize addressing the climate crisis is in their own interest has has not been effective. So when it comes to to addressing environmental problems, how much of it needs to be done in the sphere of international cooperation and and how much needs to start at home before that? I'm going to answer that very important and and well thought out question. But before that, I can't be the first guest to ask you, have you ever noticed that uh, Cardassian sounds a lot like Kardashian? (laughs) I'm not the first. Actually, you are the first guest (laughs) to ask us that. Yes. Yes. And I guess decades before they were in the, the public limelight. <laughs> anyway, so now that that's out of the way, <laughs> in my mind of that, as I, as I said previously, this is absolutely something that requires international action, but we should never use that as an excuse not to act at the national level. You know, there's, there's no point in me coming back to uh, how this question, this is, we can't say, well, it's futile. Even if I do my part, there aren't enough other people doing there, so I'm going to stop. Um, that's just really the easy way out. Uh, some of the things that we can do nationally that make a difference. First, we can show leadership. 
Canada is a country that is heavily dependent upon resource extraction, particularly fossil fuels. Uh, it's a big part of our GDP as compared to other countries. And so to have a country like ours who, you know, is quite, uh, whose GDP is heavily influenced by that sector, uh, begin to uh, move away from it and to begin to invest in renewables and clean tech, that is a very powerful uh, symbol for other countries. And uh, we should never underestimate that, uh, what, how important, well, I don't think I have to tell Truckees how important symbols are. So, um, so that's something that we can do. We can also incentivize other countries to adopt really strong greenhouse gas emissions reduction targets through uh, action. Uh, you know, one of the things that I talked about, even during the leadership race, and we kept pushing on as the Green Party, um, we're proposing, we propose carbon borders. Uh, which means that people who want to trade with Canada, they have to make sure that, you know, they're producing their products in a clean way. Uh, otherwise, we're going to uh, impose tariffs on them when they import those goods mm -hmm. to Canada. And that is probably one of the most impactful things that, uh, that we can do. Um, and so if we show leadership first, then it makes it much easier for us when we are speaking at, at the international level and multilaterals to be able to build the coalitions that we need to find ways to support countries where, let's face it, you know, they didn't get to consume the same amount of resources that we did here, and they still need to develop. So we have an obligation to those countries to make sure that their, their citizens can have a good quality of life um, while not polluting. And so we have to pay for that. Can we do it alone? Definitely not. Uh, you know, how do we do it uh, internationally? First, by showing leadership here at home and getting our own house in order. Uh, and that gives us the moral authority uh, to be able to go and build the coalitions we need to, to make sure that um, basically by hook or by crook, everyone's doing their fair share. And also we're one of the worst emitters, unfortunately. It's really important for people to know that because Canada and, and you know, people in Canada, we really have a very inflated view of our of our greenness. Uh, we are one of the top three per capita. We're one of the top three worst emitters in the world. And there have been, uh, there have been years where we have been the, the worst, the absolute worst. Uh -huh. We rank uh, really right at the bottom of the, the charts of the of developed countries in terms of our uh, greenhouse gas emissions reduction success. We've never, ever come close to meeting any of our targets for reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And even the targets that we've set that the um, government has um, uh, proposed to meet and exceed now are about half of what they should be if we were going to be responsible citizens. So it is really hard to go out there to the rest of the world and lecture them when we're just simply not doing what we need to do at home. That's just a non-starter. And it's one of the reasons I think we lost the seat at the United Nations. There's just a big disconnect between our words and our deeds. So if we just bring bring those together, you know, we, we really could do something special. This is the kind of challenge that a country like Canada was really designed to lead on. And there's still that opportunity for us. My last question is that Star Trek presents a really radical proposition that the world can be better, that humanity can come together, put aside their differences, and try to, to create a better place. So what, what gives you optimism in the world today? This has been paradoxically a really inspiring period uh, for me. Uh, it's been very difficult for me as well. You know, I'm recently elected as a political leader, but I, well before being elected as leader of the Green Party, 
I was a mother. One of my children uh, has not been able to go back to, to university this year. I'm a daughter and I haven't uh, been in the same room with my mother, who's 84, probably in, I guess, about five months now. I'm also a sister and two of my siblings you know, have lost most of their sources of income during this period. And so it's been really difficult. But at the same time, there has been a lot to inspire because we have to remember that uh, we could have had an everyone for themselves attitude towards this pandemic. And we just immediately rejected that, you know, mm-hmm. all across the country, all across the political spectrum. People just said, do what it takes. We're going to do what it takes to take care of each other, to take care of our communities, to try to make sure that no one falls uh, behind or, or no one falls through the cracks. You know, they turned to government and said, make sure that that happens. And the government and all of the political parties supported that. You know, this was a minority government. And so it could have been really messy and complicated to get anything done. But every single party came together and just in record speed agreed on a major transformation of, of, our, of our society and our economy. Seeing those two things happen has been very, very inspiring uh, to me. And it's something that I think everyone should hold on to because it tells us that when we're, we're thinking about the climate and actually having action soon enough so that it will make a difference, that we actually can do it. Um, and that people are willing to take care of each other. More than anything, I hope that people will hold on to that. I hope that people will see that we are stronger together. And certainly within our party, you know, we've called and continue to call for an, uh, an inner cabinet made up of the leadership of all the political parties to work on the climate in a nonpartisan way. So this would basically be, this would basically be our own version of the Federation where you're coming together because exactly it creates stability. It helps you do extraordinary things. Uh, and you know that it's necessary for all, for the good of all. That's what we would like to see. I really think we're the most Trekkie of all the parties <laughs> in that respect. So certain series, I would say all the lessons you need to learn in life are, are in them. I'm one of, one of my, <laughs> I, have, I have a few others I could add to the list beyond Star Trek, but uh, there are a lot of lessons there. And, and there's no question that we are either going to, sink or swim together. We ha- and the sooner we realize that and work that way, the better. And I encourage people to, as I said, insist that the spirit of collaboration and cooperation that we've had during this period, that it continues, uh, that, we, that we embed it in all of our institutions, that we insist on it from all of our parties. Yeah, inspiration and, uh, and uh, hopefully uh, collaboration are the lessons that we take out of this pandemic. Enemy Paul, it's been wonderful to chat with you. Thank you so much for joining us at Star Trek and the Jews. It's been wonderful. I, I, I really, I, first of all, think this is an incredibly innovative series. And I don't know if you were the first, but this is a, just a great idea. I'm um, going to try to introduce my sons to some of the, uh, the classics over the holiday period. I think they're going to, uh, to love it. Anyways, thank you very much for having me and wishing you the, um, the very best in, uh, in 2021. Hope, uh, hope you'll invite me back soon. We can check in uh, this time next year and see if we've kept uh, you know, the spirit of the, uh, the Federation going. Thanks so much. Take care. Take care. We're sponsored today by the Jewish Museum of Maryland. And I'm really excited to let you know that next month we'll be holding our very first Star Trek and the Jews live event with the Jewish Museum of Maryland. We're going to be talking Nimoy, Spock, and the Jewishness of Star Trek. 
It's February 24th, 2021 at 7pm Eastern, and of course, it's a Zoom event. Tickets are pay what you can, and it's part of the museum's ongoing Jews in Space exhibit. Learn more at jewishmuseummd.org. That's jewishmuseummd.org. ready to talk about whales oh my god i love this movie so much (laughs) (laughs) i love whales (laughs) well i'm going to attack the whales later on but uh, i'm just telling you should i summarize this film for the zero listeners who haven't seen it yes a mysterious probe threatens to destroy all life on earth Returning from exile on Vulcan, Kirk, Spock, and his friends travel back in time to 1986 San Francisco to obtain two humpback whales and save the future. Upon their return, Kirk is triumphantly demoted and made captain of the Enterprise A. They need the whales to communicate in their whale language. I love any Star Trek movie where the villain actually isn't a villain, but is like a confused child. (laughs) Or confused whale. (laughs) Yes, I guess the closest thing we have to a villain other than the probe that is just trying to, like, say hello too loudly are the Icelandic fishermen. (laughs) Everyone else is just trying to, like, go about their 80s business. This is such a great 80s movie and brilliantly directed by Leonard Nimoy. Yeah, I really liked it a lot. And not having a villain is actually, like, something that is rare in the Star Trek films, but the norm in televised Star Trek, especially, like, original series and next gen Hmm, yeah should i run through some ridiculous things that i love about this movie sure i like that the federation council at the start of the movie is watching star trek 3 that makes me (laughs) like them right away because i like to watch star trek 3 so you connect with them on a personal level (laughs) (laughs) the direction is just so fun too it's got a lot of those like little funny iconic moments nuclear vessels and a double dumbass on you hello computer (laughs) oh yeah that one's cute the i hate you guy the one who who spock uh vulcan nerve pinches on the bus there's a great story behind him. He's played by a guy named Kirk Thatcher, who was kind of like Nimoy's aide-de-camp on the film. For many years, he was the showrunner on The Muppets. And he was actually recently back in the Trek world. He was the narrator on the delightful animated short Trek, Ephraim and Dot, which has a little connection to this film because they both reuse that clip of the Enterprise being destroyed over the Genesis planet. Do you like this movie? I really like this movie, except I thought the Klingons were lame. Like, I feel like they were very un-Klingon, but I also feel like I say that a lot, so maybe I just don't really know what Klingons are like, but (laughs) I really felt they were very un-Klingon. He's a Klingon we see once in a while of, like, the diplomatic Klingon, kind of like that lawyer in Deep Space Nine, the one who defends Worf. It is my intention to prove that Mr. Worf was grossly negligent. Defends Worf after Worf accidentally kills a bunch of civilians who turn out to not be civilians, but a trap. I remember that. Oh, that's a good one. Well, this episode is literally saving the whales, Mm -hmm. um, which is a very 1980s view of the environment. And okay, I have I have a kind of provocative argument to make about that. I'm ready. I don't think it's ethical to prioritize beautiful and majestic species over mundane ones. I'm not sure if 
saving the whales is like ethically more important than saving the obscure worm in one region, except to the extent to which, and I, I don't understand the ecology of it, but perhaps like whales play a particular uh, like keystone role in, a, in the ecology of a particular habitat. So save the whales is kind of a, a limited view of environmentalism that I think the world kind of move past while saving the whales, which was an important thing yeah, to do. Yeah, like, I think that's a big part of it, though, is that saving the whales was really necessary because whales were going extinct. Like, a lot of different species of mm -hmm. whales were going extinct. It's not just about, like, necessarily what the role that animal has in the ecosystem, but also, like, their intelligence level. I think that whales are hmm. shown to be particularly intelligent animals. They have very clear emotional attachments to their young and are similar to humans in a lot of ways. They have, like, complicated communication, as we've seen from this movie. <laughs> exactly. The message of this film is very poignant, which is, like, despite all of their technology in the 23rd century, they are still at the mercy of the ecology of the planet. And ultimately, <laughs> it's not the probe itself that is threatening humans. It's the blocking of the sun, the destruction of the oceans. Um, no matter how far they've come technologically, like civilization on Earth cannot survive those things. Which is also true about us now. Aside from the environmental connections made in this movie, do you have any particularly dewy finds in this one? They're here and there, kind of sprinkled throughout. And I think a lot of them flow from Leonard Nimoy's creative involvement in the film. So first, like, carried over from Star Trek Three is the kind of Jewish aesthetic to the planet Vulcan. And um, Harv Bennett, who wrote and produced Star Trek Three, had said that Nimoy wanted Vulcan to have the appearance of an ancient Israelite desert. Similarly, like, Spock wears something that looks a lot like a, a kittel, uh, this, like, white robe. It's a religious garment worn on a lot of different occasions, like Yom Kippur services, some grooms wear them at their wedding, um, and eventually it serves as a burial shroud. And his even looks like it has, like, a quasi-Megan David on it. So true. Adam just kept saying it's a bathrobe. <laughs> yeah, it looked really comfortable. It was made of, like, terry cloth, and I always want to find, like, a bathrobe like that that's, like, all towel and, you know, flowing. <laughs> McCoy and Spock have a conversation about death and life and everything that I thought was very Jewish. McCoy wants to talk to Spock about being dead, and Spock says it would be impossible to discuss the subject without a common frame of reference, which I thought was very, very Jewish. Like, Judaism, unlike most other religions, has very little to say about what happens after death, mm -hmm. and what Jewish texts do have to say about the afterlife is either incomplete or contradictory, but one teaching is... Exactly what Spock says, that what is to come is simply incomprehensible from our perspectives as people living in this world. Oh. And I have one last very obscure one. <laughs> um, the whales are named George and Gracie. And I think that depending on ages, half of our audience won't get the reference and the other half won't understand that the reference needs to be explained to anyone. But these are named for George Burns and Gracie Allen. And Burns was like an iconic Jewish American entertainer from like the vaudeville era in the 20s all the way through to the 80s. And one of the whales is named after him. Very cute. I needed the explanation. <laughs> So, Chava, you did a little digging around kind of the Jewish environmental themes in this film, and what did you find? 
most of what I found was a discussion about Sa'ar Bale Chaim, which is how we're supposed to, to treat other living creatures on the planet. Older sources, like uh, Bereshit Rabbah, which is a commentary on the, the book of Genesis, have rabbis saying that the world was created and left in the hands of man, who's responsible for the goings-on of the other creatures. And from Bereshit, uh, 128, we have, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air. Dominion, I guess, is the sort of word there. Basically, the flood is kind of a result of humanity kind of failing to keep all of these species good and keeping what God wants of them and leading the world astray. Sorry, go ahead. But then that story ends with God promising to never destroy the world again by flood. <laughs> Other mechanisms remain available, <laughs> but God does promise never again to destroy the earth with a flood. <laughs> Other Talmudic opinions are that the world was created with its purpose being a home for man. So basically, like God set a dinner table and invited their guests, being man and woman, um, at the end. And so basically, the reason for the flood from that point of view is basically if the humans are sinning, then What's the point in keeping their home? Because it's just there, basically, to to house and, and provide for, for the humans. There is a conversation about why the flood would happen for all of the poor animals that didn't do anything wrong. One argument is that the animals were doing stuff wrong, basically, because man was doing stuff wrong and was leading them astray. And then the other one is just like, well, they're only there for the humans. So if we're extinguishing humanity, we may as well extinguish everything. Though I think this is also very characteristic of like early rabbinic writing mm -hmm. where the rabbis are like wait a second this story that is obviously a parable has to be taken word for word as correct but why would god kill all the animals well i, I guess the goats had it coming. yeah exactly the goats had it coming <laughs> and that is a line of thinking that i think earlier and later jewish scholars writers thinkers whatever you want to call them weren't so concerned with but in like this kind of early rabbinic period it gets taken very very seriously what did the sheep do wrong yeah that brings into question how we should treat animals and stuff but not really in a moral way it's more just like what is best for us what should we do with it because it's ours um, should we preserve it or deplete it? What is better for us to do with it? Keep it around in case a probe comes wanting to say hello to it. Exactly, like in case of probe. Um. In case of a space cylinder, it's important that you not disturb these goats. Yeah, so then like later opinions are less human-centric. Rambam's opinion is that it shouldn't be believed that all beings exist for the sake of the existence of man. On the contrary, all the other things, too, have been intended for their own sakes and not for the sake of something else. So that's very similar to what we were talking about before with why, like, the trees are created they and, like, nature and natural resources themselves. Basically, that animals have their own right to exist. So the ethical questions come in, like, what are we allowed to do with them? Because we're morally obliged to allow them to exist. I'm actually so glad you brought the flood into this. I don't know how it escaped me watching this film, but like, literally, the earth is being destroyed <laughs> in a flood because of man's sins in this film. And I'm sure that was not lost on Nimoy. That uh, didn't occur to me until just now. <laughs> Pretty relevant. In the Shulchan Aruch, 
Rabbi Isserlane from 14th, 15th century basically grants permission to do anything we want with animals, cruel or not, if it is of some benefit to man. Okay, but what happened with what the Rambam said? Can't we go back to that? But no, basically he's like, as long as we do it for our own use, it's cool. We shouldn't do things that are like needlessly painful for animals, but as long as it's there's a human profit involved, it's totally allowed. I guess like as a liberal Jew, the Shulchan Aruch is like often a sticking point only because it gets used as this like stopping point. For centuries, Jews were in conversation and debate with Halakha, and it's like the Shulchan Aruch comes along and is like, final ish word, here you go. Yeah, that's so annoying to me. <laughs> <laughs> there is prohibition on making an animal suffer though, isn't there? Suffer for no reason. Yeah, so that's like from the Shulchan Aruch, but then later, some other commentary particularly from Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, basically already a 20th century understanding. This was in particular relation to uh, fattening calves in these narrow stalls where they don't even have enough space to take a few steps, and they're not fed any normal animal food, and they're not allowed to suckle. Instead, they're fed with these like fatty liquids, and that they can't enjoy life at all because they're frequently ill, and they require all kinds of medications. What's that called again? The food they make from calves? I don't know any of the names of cuts of meat. Oh, uh, veal? Is veal is veal calves? Yeah, I think so. I'm vegetarian. I don't know any of these things. I also don't really eat meat. <laughs> but yeah, so he's basically super against that, Rabbi Moshe Feinstein. He's like, well, they must be guilty of the prohibition against causing pain to animals. Because even though the pain is permitted when there's a purpose, because there's a purpose in fattening up these calves, because you want to eat them, you're not allowed to cause senseless pain. That's forbidden. You're allowed to slaughter them, <laughs> and you're allowed to work with them if there is an actual gain for humans. And I guess that line of actual gain and senseless torture is a little bit fine, but I feel like most people really know what is senseless torture and not. Well, I don't know. You don't think so? There's an interesting debate going on when you have resurgence of European countries banning Jewish and Islamic ritual slaughter for kosher and halal. Actually, as a vegetarian, I have a real problem with this. Not the kosher and halal slaughter, the banning of them. Because it is the same objection I have when a bunch of celebrities go and attack, like, traditional Inuit uh, seal hunting practices. Which is, like, the harm to animals from just, like, the regular horrific factory farming used to make the chicken and beef that most omnivores, you know, consume nearly every day is, like, so much worse of a harm to animals than the tiny fraction of people that are following traditional ways of life and traditional practices. And it just feels like such an obscene attack to be like, yes, we grow chickens in cages for their entire life. And oh, by the way, all the male chicks get put into a crusher where we literally smush them as soon as they hatch because it's not worth it to give them any grain. But like, oh, cutting their neck with a blade instead of a bolt or killing a seal, which we deem to be like a good and cute animal, that's over the line. So the vegetarian in me is like, if we're gonna start with something, let's start with the horrific mass consumption. And then once we've dealt with that whole thing, then 
okay, we can have a conversation about these other groups, but but we can't go and start with them because then it just feels like picking on them, which I think is exactly what these European countries are doing, mostly because I think they're trying to pick on Muslims and we kind of got tagged in that, but like, that is also bad. So don't do that. And also please leave the seal hunters alone. They're just, they're just doing what they can to get by. Yes. And also the amount that they consume is so, so little. It is so minuscule. Their great sin is that they happen to kill an adorable creature. If seals were ugly, nobody would care about them. But but they're fluffy. They're fluffy. So they get <laughs> Seals are pretty adorable. <laughs> they're like really close to whales in my heart. <laughs> um my wife ate whale one time. That's that's okay. I'm okay with that. Yes. Adam ate kangaroos it, and I was shocked. But <laughs> Leah had a like an ounce when we were in Iceland of a whale that is not an endangered whale. She didn't like it. She said it was like spongy beef. It is also very trafe. I very much encouraged her to do it. Um, <laughs> very hypocritical of me, the vegetarian, but I was like, while you're here, we should, you should try the delicacy and have it on my behalf. <laughs> That sounds like a so good I'm idea. a terrible vegetarian. It it feels like an incohate offense. You're like a very good vegetarian, though. You're vegetarian-ish, eh? I'm vegetarian-ish. I eat fish sometimes. There is a great tradition of Star Trek vegetarians. I mean, maybe they all are if there's a replicator, but like on record, Spock is a vegetarian. Tuvok, T'Pol, Chakotay, go team. Woohoo! Before we wrap up, do you want to do some kind of quick hits on? Some other environmental episodes? Yeah. Do you want to get started? One I really like is the Voyager episode, Night. This is one of the two episodes where Voyager is lost in an all-dark void and needs to find their way out of it. And I think the writers forgot when they wrote one of those that they had already done that story. Oh, well. They're both pretty good. And they come across this ship of uh, the Malon who are dumping radioactive waste that is uh, wrecking havoc on an ecosystem that, like, an indigenous population relies on. Voyager actually, like, solves their whole planet's environmental problem by finding, like, a new way for them to use their warp drives that would not create this waste. But the Malon, in a a very on-the-nose commentary on the real world, are like, okay, thank you very much, but actually that would ruin my entire industry so I'm going to try to kill you instead. (laughs) It is an exaggeration. There are lots of industries, you know, when I think about like the coal industry, for example, there really is very little economic justification in 2021 for there to be a coal industry, but it continues to exist because it has political support in a number of countries. Terrible environmental problem that actually doesn't even have a purpose, except that particular powerful people are invested in it continuing to uh, to operate. So, Voyager Night. Oh, well, that's depressing. <laughs> How about you, Chava? The episode that I thought about was the Discovery episode, Saints of Imperfection. Ooh. It's basically about how there are these people called the Jasep. They live and are being destroyed because of Discovery traveling through the mycelial network. And this does damage to their habitat. They don't really go back to it, though, do they? No, which was also a problem in Force of Nature. I think a couple times after that, they're like, uh, you have permission to exceed the warp speed limit, but no other series mentions it. Yeah, that's what Adam said. And I also was like, no, I thought that they mentioned it a few other times. Okay, I'm going to go like really hardcore nerd here as if hosting a podcast podcast called Star Trek and the Jews wasn't enough. But in the technical manual for Voyager, you know, like we we gotta go to Midrash. We can't get it in canonical Trek. The Midrash says that you know how Voyager's nacelles kind of like 
tilt when they go to warp, uh-huh. that this was a uh, technical workaround so as not to damage subspace. But of course, that is only Midrash. It's, it's not Tanakh. Okay, okay. So this, like, tilting of the things in actual physical space. <laughs> the main problem was the angles <laughs> and the pointing. <laughs> Makes a lot of sense. Hava, did you find an Afikoman? I did. And it's like not at all related to the environment. Okay. There is a folktale about this famous rabbi that has a disagreement with a philosopher. And the philosopher says he can train a cat and make him act like a person. And this is very similar to what Jordi and Data were arguing about in The Force of Nature, where Spot is misbehaving and Jordi wants Data to train him. Train her. Being unsure there is actually entirely correct because Spot's gender switches a couple times in the series. Okay, good. So that was actually me knowing Star Trek rather than me not knowing Star Trek. <laughs> so the rabbi disagrees, and, and so they have a contest. This cat that the philosopher brings has been trained as a waiter, and in this contest, he serves a full meal to the two men. The audience is obviously amazed and astounded by this, but just as they start to assume that the rabbi is wrong, opens a little small box and let a mouse run across the table. And the cat drops everything and all the dishes clatter to the floor, breaking. At the end of the day, the rabbi was right. A cat is a cat, and no matter what, they must be treated as a cat. And this apparently was told in a few different places, like in different folktales, about different rabbis, so... The one that we had found was about Maimonides. Cool. I like it. Yeah. And uh, in my head canon, Data keeps accidentally killing his cats and getting new ones. <laughs> <laughs> do you have an Afikoman? Indeed, I do. Since the 1980s, the humpback whale has had a tremendous comeback. That's great. They're no longer endangered, and they're actually listed as a species of least concern. But of course, in our real world, a breeding pair of humpback whales and a leading marine biologist were removed from the timeline at a critical junction. So my afikomen is for the big old temporal paradox that Spock might have let out when he went back in time and perhaps caused the very events he was trying to remedy. How is that Jewish? <laughs> oh, it's not Jewish. Okay, fine. Well, maybe it's uh, Moshe going into Rabbi Akiva's classroom <laughs> and seeing the crowns on the letters. I don't know. I just like the Pogo Paradox. I like it too. It's a great <laughs> Afikoman. Thank you for listening to Star Trek and the Jews. Next month, we're doing something special and different. There is no Hebrew school homework, but I encourage you to listen on a starry night. I'm really excited for what we have planned, and I can't wait to share it with all of you. Thank you so much to our Rebel Alert guest, Anami Paul, leader of the Green Party of Canada. Our opening credits were arranged by Dr. Adam Snyderman. We'll see you next month. See you. Thanks for listening.